Joy Sauce is a new American-Asian media platform that makes space for vibrant, unforgettable stories full of nuance and contradictions seldom discussed in the mainstream, normalizing and celebrating Asian-American presence in all facets of media. Enjoy the diverse tapestry of narratives that make up the American-Asian landscape at www.joysauce.com. Hi, everyone. I'm David Chen, the host of the Culturally Relevant podcast. And welcome to Culturally Relevant Conversations, which is a special collection of interviews for my podcast featuring Asian diaspora visionaries brought to you courtesy of Joy Sauce. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Charles Yu about his exceptional book, Interior Chinatown. Interior Chinatown tells the story of Willis Wu, who plays the role of generic Asian man in the background of a popular cop show. I love this book. I've recommended this book to many folks, but you don't need to take my word for it. In the time since this interview was recorded, Charles Yu won the 2020 National Book Award for Interior Chinatown. Charles Yu is a writer whose fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Harvard Review, and Oxford American. He's also written for TV shows such as Legion, Westworld, and Lodge 49. He's the author of books such as How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, Sorry, Please, Thank You, and third class superhero. Check out his book, Interior Chinatown, available now. And here's my conversation with Charles Yu. This conversation was originally published on January 29th, 2020. Charles Yu, welcome to Culturally Relevant. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So Charles, one thing uh, I like to begin with uh, when I talk with a lot of people is uh, their breaking in story. But uh, I was reading the New York Times profile on you that was published recently. Uh, and I won't say that our breaking in stories are similar because I don't really believe I have broken in yet. But I did recognize many aspects of your childhood in my own. Like uh, you are Taiwanese American. Uh, you watch Twilight Zone reruns when you're growing up. You played Street <laughs> Fighter 2. Uh, you read Choose Your Own Adventure books. These are all parts of my childhood as well. So the New York Times profile then goes on to say that you became a corporate lawyer. And that was actually something I was interested in doing at one point, but I ended up working for tech companies instead. I'm curious, was law a passion of yours growing up or was it something you felt like you had to do to kind of honor your parents or, you know, what what was behind becoming a lawyer? Because that takes quite a bit of work. Right. Yeah, I I wasn't the kid that had like the little briefcase and I was, you know, <laughs> practicing my <laughs> closing arguments. In fact, when I told my parents that I was go my Taiwanese parents that I was going to law school thinking, you know, it was a good consolation for not getting into medical school. Um, they were not, they weren't actually as happy as I thought they were. I don't actually don't <laughs> think they were happy at all. <laughs> Cause they, they wanted you to be a doctor or they did. Yeah. And, uh, they thought that suited my temperament. And that being a lawyer does not, did not. And um, they weren't totally wrong. But, 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 but you know, uh, I would say a Taiwanese-American family is one in which uh, being the lawyer, like becoming a successful lawyer can be seen as a massive disappointment, right? <laughs> yes. Nailed it. That's, I feel like a kinship that you <laughs> would understand that, yeah. how it's possible. But um, they're proud. They have been proud in many ways. They were huge supporters of of my writing actually. But I think as a career, they didn't think law suited me. They weren't, you know, they were probably right on, on a number of levels. It was, um, I did end up practicing for a long time. I don't know how long you worked in tech. I feel like I've read about that. I'm before. still, I'm still working in tech yeah. right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Good point. I'm still kind of a recovering lawyer. It's, I was there for 13 years in law land and oh, wow. it's been about five years since I exited for TV land, I guess. You started writing short stories. It's, it sounds like while you were working in law, is that right? I did, yeah. I started roughly the same time that I started practicing. So 
right when I graduated, I started writing short stories um, instead of studying for the bar. Can you talk a little bit about like what your stories were about? Yeah, I think the very first story I ever wrote was as a set of, it was like a problem set for anyone that's a science major is some physics problems in the, uh, you know, a train is traveling from LA to New York at 60 kilometers per hour, that sort of problem. And, um, but it was actually a love story, uh, between A and B <laughs> and like the points think, that are trying to be bridged by this train, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it, it was, you know, in a lot of ways, a kind of buried story about uh, probably my parents, you know, and how it, it, there was an emotional element to it, but it was told as physics problems. And that was probably indicative of a bunch of things that I wrote early on, which were these things that w- I'd like to play with form and I'd like to try different things. And some of that's probably being a lawyer. Some of that was that I was a science major and I had these other languages and vocabularies that I could import into the world of fiction and sort of play around with them. And that's usually what sort of, what got, what kept me excited about writing them was being able to use the lingo of something else to tell an emotional or psychological story. The profile says you got hundreds of rejections, according to you, right? During this time, yeah. submitting these short stories. First of all, I mean, let me just say the short story sounds amazing about the A to B thing. I'd love to read <laughs> that, but you got hundreds of rejections and, uh, I'm curious, like, what kept you going during this time, like, continuing to submit? Because as as somebody myself who works full-time and does a lot of things on the side, uh, it, it, I, I just imagine, like, after rejection number, like, 38, you know, I might start to feel like maybe maybe I'm not cut out for doing this stuff on the side. Like, I either need to, like, quit my job and focus more on this or maybe I should just give up and, and focus more on the full-time job. What was your mindset at the time as you're getting these rejections? How are you, how are you working through them? Yeah, I don't know. That's, I guess, if I'm blessed with one characteristic that has helped, it's been sort of dumb stubbornness in the face of rejection. That's, uh, I, <laughs> it would sting for about 20 minutes. I'd be standing there at the mailbox. You know, I lived in this one of these complexes where, it feels almost like a dorm, but it's for people that are no longer in college. And I'd go to my mail slot basically and, um, open it up and I'd see the thin envelope and know what it was. So like, you know, I'm walking up to it, I'm excited and my heart's racing. Cause I'm like, okay, I'm probably going to hear soon. And the only thing worse than seeing in the empty mailbox was actually seeing something in the mailbox. Cause I knew what it was and I'd open it up and I'd look at the little slip from blank literary review. If I was lucky, somebody had sort of initialed like, nice try or, you know, try again. But most of the time it was a completely blank pre-printed form. And, you know, to your question, I don't know what kept me going. I, I suppose it was my own, it was like the the kind of legal career that was stepping on my neck or my chest. It just felt like he, it's going to squeeze everything out of me. So it was my only little whimper of, I'm still, you know, here trying to do that. And so I, I just had to keep putting it out there in the world. It was my connection to the world or, yeah. Oh, what a, what a profound idea. Well, obviously you got the last laugh in the end, Charles. Uh, so I, I want to <laughs> ask about the, the transition from uh, being a lawyer to, to working full-time as a writer. Like what were the kind of key milestones where you felt, hey, I, c- I, could, actually, I could actually do this? You know, you obviously started getting accepted uh, eventually, right? But like, what were some of the the big moments that led to you 
being where you are right now. Yeah, um, there were. That's exactly how I think of it. it. You know, the first time a story is accepted. So that was the Harvard review. And it was that story, actually. Um, it took a while, but somebody took it. And the the, the, the physics problem story. And that was, I was super pumped about that. Because um, then all of a sudden I went from unpublished writer to published writer. And then a few years later, probably three and a half years later, I had enough stories that an agent contacted me after having read a different story and said, Hey, do you have a novel? And I said, no. And he said, well, do you have search stories? You know, we could try. It's really hard, which is what people say. But every year there's lots of short story collections that come out. So it is hard, but it's also possible. And to like my amazement, uh, ended up selling that collection to a publisher to Harcourt and, and that was a big milestone, having a book. This was 2006, so still like a long way before I had ever thought about it as a livelihood. Um, but that was a big one. And then, as you mentioned, the National Book Foundation. So, But then along the way, there's sort of like valleys as well. Like the, a big valley was right after that book came out. You know, there's this kind of euphoria of, oh, I have a book in the world. And it's all going to be different. And there's about two weeks of that. And, <laughs> and then, oh, my life is literally unchanged. Um, <laughs> so, which was fine. I was still, if that's how it had gone, I would have been, I would obviously not change. I'd rather have that than not have that because right. it's about the work and it's about having someone actually read it and connect with it and all of a sudden go, oh, now I'm in a conversation with someone, whereas before I was just scribbling with to myself. And but there were there was a about between the publication and the time I heard from the National Book Foundation was 10, 11 months. And it just felt like I don't know if I'm actually going to do this again. You know, I have uh, at the time my wife and I were had our first child on the way. And so I was feeling the pressure more to buckle down, be like, stop sort of messing around with this thing on the side. And you got that out of your system, you know, and then I got this uh, notification that I'd been selected by the novelist Richard Powers as one of these people uh, in their 535 program. You know, it didn't that didn't like mean I got another book contract right away or all of a sudden I had a bestseller. None of those things for sure. But there's a lot of validation, right? Exactly. Get that. It felt like, oh, wow, there not only is my family and myself like, do we have kind of this for validation internally, but that there's someone out there in the world that I've never met. In fact, someone who I used to read in college has somehow found my book and, and selected it. Like, how did that happen? So that, that was wonderful. Yeah. So that kind of helped give you the energy to, to keep going. It sounds like it did. Yeah. So when was the moment when you felt like you could really leave the, uh, I assume well-paying corporate gig? That wasn't until seven years later in 2014. Um, so I was still working as a lawyer and um, by that time I'd published three books and got a call about an HBO show called Westworld, which you're a little bit familiar with. I'm a little bit familiar with. That's correct. <laughs> I think you're actually more familiar with Westworld than I am. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> you and Joanna definitely yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. So you got a call to... Uh, work on the show and uh it's you spoke with uh jonathan nolan and lisa joy and like what what was it that they had seen of your work that made them think you'd be a good fit you know i never actually asked them because i was afraid 
I didn't want to. <laughs> you didn't want to jinx it because if they said nothing, then it would be awkward or something. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, well, no, we haven't. We read about you. I don't know what they were going to say, but I assume it's like a short story yeah. because at that time I had no script samples floating around in the world and wow. that's amazing that's amazing like no script samples they just thought like they they love the way you thought so much that they're like they want to bring you aboard right i i like to think that uh, <laughs> or maybe they're, they're just doing it as a favor for a friend or something who knows <laughs> <laughs> they know my mom and so they're yeah. Yeah, yeah that would be well i you know lisa joy is is a former lawyer herself she didn't practice nearly as long as i did but i wonder if that helped at all um yeah. Some some but lawyer yeah, kinship they, going there, I think I think maybe a little bit, but I think uh, maybe a, a deeper kinship. I, this is presum you know me presuming this, but was they were looking for really different kinds of voices. So the people they ended up hiring for that first season did include me and you know, Ed Brubaker, who had were you know I think at that point had sold a lot of pilots, but I'm not sure he'd ever been in a room. Yeah, and they were trying to make this thing that they ended up making uh, that that I was lucky enough to be part of that was, um, that required, I think a lot of different kinds of storytellers. And so to the, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for like them being open to, um, different, different points of view and voices. Yeah. We should mention Ed Brubaker, the uh, American uh, comic book writer and cartoonist, right? Right. Um, so, but even at that point, like w was Westworld when you're like, okay, I can, I can quit now. Like this is it. Um, I'm done with law now. Like what, what went behind the decision? I'm just curious to know. Um, well, the very first question was definitely health insurance because <laughs> as it, you know, probably is for a lot of people. It, we had two kids at that point, my wife and I, and, um, we just wanted to make sure if we were going to take this leap because that, you know, just to people probably know, but if you're going to be on staff in a TV writer's room, that's a full-time job for the most part. Um, in fact, I, I can't imagine how it wouldn't be a full-time job. So um, you have to actually physically be in the room. And so I had to quit my law job at that point. Um, and so the question was, okay, can we really do this? Um, is it stable enough? Uh, what's the worst case scenario? And I, I guess the worst case scenario was it doesn't work out. I, I sort of wash out after a year or two or however long and I could just go back to being a lawyer. So, but it, it, it felt like if we we're ever going to take a gamble like that, you know, that show with the people, you know, right. for HBO already sold as a season. Um, that was the time to take the leap. Yeah. If it was like a threes company reboot or something, maybe, maybe not quite, but, but, uh, Westworld. <laughs> right. I'm just imagining that. I love, I love. <laughs> you can place all your chips on Westworld. Okay, so, uh, well, th that's, it's an amazing story, and I'm, I'm, congratulations on all the success you've had so far. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Interior Chinatown. Should we cover the premise of Interior Chinatown? Because I guess, like, I have a way of describing the premise of Interior Chinatown. I'm curious, like, what is the way you describe the premise, and then where did this idea to, to write this book come from? Sure. I'd love to describe it. I also would love to hear your description. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's both try to describe the premise of your book. Okay. Simultaneously? No. <laughs> you go first. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. Um, it's about Willis Wu, and Willis is a guy who has a pretty mundane existence. He lives 
in Chinatown upstairs from a Chinese restaurant, um, you know, in this SRO, which is a place where you get a little room. Yeah. You have to go down the end of the hall for your to use the bathroom. Single and, resident occupancy, I think, is what it stands y- for. Yeah, or yeah. single room occupancy. Yeah, yeah, I think the latter, but probably both work. And um, every morning, Willis goes down to his job, which is to play generic Asian man number three in a procedural cop show, this fictional show that's called Black and White, which is sort of like Law and Order. And Willis's job, as you could guess from the title, is to be this kind of bit part. Um, he doesn't have any lines, typically, and he sort of stands in the background, and he's more like scenery than an actual character. But what he, you know, that's not his dream. His dream is to become Kung Fu guy, which is the highest that he can be as an Asian actor. Um, and so the story is really about Willis principally along the, and, and sort of trying to break out of his small role and, and become a hero or at least become a protagonist in the story, in the story and what he, the challenges and other things he encounters along the way. Do you want me, do you want to hear my description? Yes, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let me let me give you the way I describe the premise to people who I'm trying to sell this book on because I'm a big fan of the book and I'm trying to tell everyone I know to read it. Uh, and the way I describe it is basically, uh, you know how in the the Toy Story movies you're seeing <laughs> like what the toys do when you're not looking at them, right? Like. <laughs> Uh, the the, mo- the book Interior Chinatown posits like, you know, the generic Asian guy you see on a TV show, like just in the background somewhere, like this book is about what happens when like, you're not looking at that guy. Like when <laughs> that guy is, he's living his own life and he's doing, he has his own hopes and aspirations and his dreams. And like, this book is about that guy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and he inhabits this kind of. Uh, metaphysical world very much like the Toy Story characters inhabit where, you know, all these background characters, they hang out in this uh, uh, Chinatown SRO and uh, and you go on all these adventures with them. So that's kind of the way I describe your book. I really like that. I might steal or Feel free to that. use that at all of your book talks as you're doing your tour. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I plan on it. The Toy Story thing is great. Yes. Um, so tell us about like where the idea for this book came from. You know, it came from wanting to capture something about what it's like to be Asian American in a way that feels subjectively true to me, you know, on the inside. And I think maybe specifically as an Asian American man, but, and when I hit on this metaphor, it unlocked a lot of things for me. It was, you know, what you said, it, it felt like I could tell a sort of show a side to existence of this otherwise ignored character. And, and so I think things started flowing from there. I, I really, I, I think probably working in TV, you know, was I had some of these things had been marinating for a while and all of a sudden the kind of world presented it to myself and I had fun entering this world. I said, I get to spend time in this sort of law and order universe, but like you said, moving around and seeing backstage, seeing sort of the secrets and what it's like. Um, cause we know what the what the cop story is about, right? We've seen that story and we know how it's going to go. And so that also helped in this framework because it's a, I think it's a story people are familiar with. And, and so on the, in the margins, there's this other story going on and that's where my spotlight is focused on. In the book, you identify this kind of hierarchy of like Asian males that one can aspire to be, 
right? You start off at background oriental male. You, you can go to dead Asian man. Then you go to generic Asian man number three, which could be like a delivery guy, generic Asian man number two, which could be like a waiter, and then finally just generic Asian man. Yeah. Um, this actually reminds me a lot of a similar hierarchy that uh, I, I, I do a podcast with a character actor named Stephen Tobolowsky. Mm. And he has appeared in all kinds of roles of varying importance over his life. He has a very similar hierarchy. Um, he says, the best thing you want to be in a movie is a character who has a first and a last name, right? Because <laughs> that means uh, you're going to see a lot of that character on screen and know a lot about that character's life. Uh, right. But failing that, just a first name is okay. Uh, and then failing that, you can be a character with uh, like a, a job, like waiter, you know, that's like kind of lower on the totem pole. Uh, and then finally, you get to a person with a job and a number, which is like pretty rough. So that would be like <laughs> your, your generic Asian man number three, homeless guy number two, what have you. But he, sa right. he says actually the worst category is a person and a location, like <laughs> old man on a train. He's like, that's, that's absolutely, you will not even see the camera when you're showing up uh, to film that day. So I don't know if, uh, if <laughs> as someone who works in TV, you can probably empathize with some of that. I can totally. I, I, one, it's funny, too, to think about because he's had some iconic role. I mean, he's in Groundhog Day. Yeah. Am I thinking of the right person? Yeah, that's the right guy. Yep. And Silicon Valley, too, right? I yep. think he had quite an arc in there. But that's such a good hierarchy. I'm both glad and not. I'm I'm glad I didn't know about it before because I maybe wouldn't have been able to do it with as much freedom. Yeah, knowing that someone had already thought of this hierarchy. Um, but uh, it, I guess it's a different context here because it's specifically about yeah, this the one kind of guy. Asian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. What was behind the decision to write the book in uh, script format? Like it's formatted. Many components of it are formatted like a script, right? Like a movie script. Yeah, I mean, I think that flowed naturally out of the premise. And there was a moment where I thought, am I really going to do this? Is that going to be something people want to read? And I felt like once it started going, I found, I hope I found this kind of balance with it reads, there are portions that are screenplay and technically the whole thing holds together as a screenplay, but long stretches are basically just prose that's formatted as a screenplay. But right. it felt like I wanted it to be, you know, the actual reality was just an episode of that. And and I liked how that gave me kind of the structure to then navigate within that universe. There's a portion of your book where a bunch of Asian characters are talking about like the different styles of martial arts they'll do in the TV shows they're in. But then they kind of realize that nobody really cares about the differences between <laughs> the styles. And yeah. uh, one of the quotes from the book is like all that they're looking for, all movies want is cool Asian shit. End quote. Right. That's uh, something that you said from the way. And I'm curious, as somebody who has worked in Hollywood, uh, is this something you've experienced or witnessed? And uh, if so, how? Um, I haven't directly experienced that kind of sort of broad brush. You know, no one's like, you know, give us some cool Asian shit. Um, <laughs> luckily, I think we're past that. Um I have had, and I think this is a good thing. I have had people say, uh, we'd love to hear stories that are, you know, personal or coming from a different point of view. And so that's, that's really our focus or even our mandate is to tell stories that are, um, from diverse points of view. And to me, that's a huge opportunity. Um, and it's exciting that they actually 
um, that that Hollywood, I guess, to use the term, is is looking for those is looking for that. Um, I, I think though that the cool Asian shit that really comes from both what I grew up watching and what I think still exists to some extent, which is um, that as much as you know, someone from the inside might see gradations or nuances, it doesn't always translate. I mean, sometimes what people really want is uh, the feeling of something exotic, or I just want to know about something, a different world than, than what I'm in right now. For instance, the movie Crazy Rich Asians, which I loved, that's, you know, it, there's plenty of nuance in that. How much of it translates into what people enjoy about it, I don't know, but... Um, right. So, or, or yeah. Another example, uh, Westworld Season 2. There's a whole section of it that took place in feudal Japan. Um, but, yeah, I, I have no doubt that a lot of time and effort went into uh, developing the uh, the world that they were in. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think what you're saying is maybe uh, it, it doesn't always translate that way to the viewer, right? Like the viewer, sometimes all they want is something that's exotic or that they don't, that they're not familiar with. Is right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to sort of the idea in the book. There's a couple of epigrams where that's referenced is the idea that historically these LA Chinatowns that were built played for any kind of Asia. You know, they played as a, an amalgam basically to signal we're somewhere else right now. We're very far away in a foreign Asian country. Yeah. The book covers many different aspects of the immigrant experience, and I wanted to ask you about a couple of them. Uh, You write heartbreakingly about the protagonist's parents in the book and how uh, the father in particular is poor and has has to go hungry sometimes. Uh, This is something I can relate to a little bit as I grew up in a barely middle-class family. But there are also many immigrant parents, at least who, that I grew up with, who were quite successful. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, like, why you chose to highlight this particular experience in your book. Um, was it something you experienced growing up? What motivated you to, to, to bring this particular experience to light? I, I love the question. I think for two things, two reasons. One, it was somewhat personal. I, I think I would describe our family as middle class, but there was definitely a trajectory to that. Um, my parents and some of their siblings um, struggled economically for sure for a long time yeah, before same. getting to a place. Same, yeah. And I think that's a side of this Asian story. I mean, we often hear about, especially now, if there's a- Asians that come in, they may often have money, right? But it's, back then, there was a different kind of thing. We had a kind of wave of immigrants that came in this brain drain when they were allowed to after 1965, when the the quotas were lifted and Asians could actually immigrate. It was immigrate here. It was actually a bunch of really smart people who were coming here on educational scholarships. And so there was a wave of people that were just trying to become engineers or scientists or doctors or other things and shopkeepers or there are other things where, and we haven't seen, I I haven't seen as many of those stories showing that not all Asians are rich. Yeah. And it seems like it's important for you to tell the other side of it that, you know, there's some Asian American immigrants that go on to be really successful. And, but there's like this whole kind of poverty that occurs that like, we don't necessarily hear these stories. I mean, I, you know, one of the first stories to break out in America was called Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> um, yeah. So exactly. uh, there, there is there is like a lot of struggle that maybe hasn't been told, uh, certainly not as frequently told uh, in American pop culture, I think. 
there's a portion of your book where the protagonist is speaking with his father, but mm. he can't really speak the language. And there's this kind of like shame that the protagonist feels and that like, even though he comes from Taiwan or, you know, wherever you are from as an immigrant, but that like you have less of a grasp of the language than your parents do. Uh, and, and you kind of feel this shame. And I'm, I'm curious, like, is this something you personally have experienced? Like, do you speak Taiwanese or Chinese fluently? Neither fluently. And it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> but um, and there is a lot of shame. It, this that part is definitely coming from a place of personal experience. It's just a shame privately. It's also a shame publicly when we're like with their friends or relatives who are not just giving me grief, but really giving my parents grief for like, why doesn't Charlie speak better? Or, <laughs> and then beyond the shame, it's really, there's a kind of gap, right? There's just a... Yeah, like, a, like an understanding gap or a, a comprehension gap that you, you can't bridge, right? Yeah, not everything can be said anyway. And there's definitely communications that are nonverbal and a kind of shared cultural or emotional understanding that they're my parents, you know? So they, they know me and I know them, but um, there are things where it would be nice to be able to communicate verbally as well. I wonder, sometimes I wonder if that's part of why I try so hard in English to be, to be able to locate emotions or ideas is that's the tool I have. So I go deep that way. I'm curious if you have made peace with it in some way. And if so, how, I mean, my parents were terrified that my English would not be good enough to match the English of my peers at school. And mm. so that's what, like, they spoke English to me all the time, and um, they refused to uh, speak, you know, Chinese to me. Um, uh, they, I mean, they're native Taiwanese speakers, but basically, mm -hmm. like, they would try to avoid speaking Taiwanese as much as possible. They'd try to speak in English as much as possible, particularly during my formative years, because they knew, like, that's when my language skills were being built. And as a result of that, uh, I, I can't speak Taiwanese very well, you know, which is very sad to me. But at the same time, it was kind of a sacrifice I feel like they made on my behalf. You know what I mean? It's, it's so strange to hear you say that. I In recent years, I've realized that that was almost exactly what you said, that it was their ability and willingness to speak English more than a lot of their cohort, you know, that allowed me, I think, to have that. And right. that they... And, and, and also that might, yeah, I think the fact that they could speak English well enough, you know, and not only well enough, like fluently. So that was a luxury that I, I see a lot of the positives of it, not the negative. It's, it's only, I think only recently that I've thought, especially as my kids get older that I realized, oh, I can't really give them anything unless I, you know, <laughs> put them in Chinese school or right. have them live in Taiwan and learn Taiwan. Like they'd have to go live in like Tainan or something and like learn Taiwanese. Yeah. But um, just to expand on that a little bit, you said you can't really give them anything. Right. And I think there is this, this idea, if you are an, an immigrant that like you want to pass on elements of your heritage to your children. Right. Uh, whether it be language or food or customs, right? And if you can't speak the language that well, it, it can be difficult to do that. Is that that's something you're experiencing right now? It is, yeah. And that's I find myself in this place where I want to 
teach them things or expose them to things. And um, that's just one area where it's tough. You know, we have school projects are like, what are some traditions your family has? You know, and <laughs> we, we, we do some of the traditions. Sure, we celebrate Lunar New Year and, right. and they have some words that they've picked up here and there. But to me, I feel like in some ways things sort of are ending with me. And the, as a family, as a nuclear family, the four of us have to invent what we are going forward because they, they're kids that are, I guess, if you call them third generation Americans, my parents being the first generation, they look the way they look. Like my wife is Cantonese American. So like they look fully Chinese, you know, right. ethnically. And yet they're American kids born to American parents. I just wonder what identity they'll have beyond growing up in Southern California. Yeah. And I, I think that the, what you're describing, right, is that as an immigrant or as an Asian American or as a Taiwanese American, like there's all this emotional labor that you do into thinking about your place in society, your place in your line of ancestors and all, all those things uh, that is just largely invisible to people who aren't immigrants, right? Like that they just, they just never have to really think about those things. But that, I love that. Yeah. but that we do, you know, because I, I feel like you and I are somewhat similar in age. I don't know. We're probably like five or 10 years apart at most. And it, it's just like, when, just when you figure it out, like, oh, I think, I think I'm finally starting to comprehend like where my place in this whole situation is. Then you need to actually, like the journey doesn't end there. Then you need to actually like try to figure out what you're going to pass on to your kids. Right. So it's like a, yeah. kind of a never ending, like trying to navigate these, uh, these boundaries. And that's very much what your book is about, right? I, I think it's about like, what is my role in this place, right? Like literally, what is my role in, in a very literal way? That's what the book does, is it literalizes roles uh, that we struggle with. Um, so I thought the book was very clever in, in kind of bringing that to, to light. Um, there is a section in a book, there is a section of the book where a character has a child. And right. uh, it's... It's really a, a beautiful portion because uh, the character who has a child is Asian, and and they they say something like that they realize that they are now part of someone else's story, and they feel lucky to be part of someone else's story, right? Like your whole life, you grow up and you're the main character in your own life. You're you're the protagonist of the movie that you star in. Then you have a kid and you realize like you're actually just like kind of a side character in someone else's story. You're a pretty big, important side character, but like you're now a side character. Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm curious, like, is, I assume this is something you have felt as you've had kids and like, and that's what you, uh, that's the experience you shared in the book. But can you talk a little bit about that? Existence before and after children is really marked by that, I think is, well, beyond sort of just brute physical survival, like make sure my kid does not, you know, walk into traffic or something, but <laughs> is is learning, oh, the focus is on this person now. And yeah. that's it. I woke up, you know, sometime in the last few months and realized that I have thought that I have been funny for a long time, but that I'm basically making dad jokes all the time and that my kids do not find me very funny. <laughs> um, that's been a gradual process, apparently. But um but somehow I turned into a dad in the last, you know, decade or so. And, um, the, the, so it's both, I think, sudden and, and long-term in a weird way of the change happens immediately and then grappling with what that is, you know, actually growing up, actually maturing enough to, to think of this person and their needs. But it, it, even beyond sort of 
you know, parental sacrifice, because I think every, probably most or all parents can relate to that. I, I for me, it, there was a, another dimension where it was my kids look like me and are, you know, going to grow up similar to me, but, um, they, between me and my parents is this huge gap. They they immigrated from Taiwan. They were born in a different country and they came here and they're living in a different country. And they've lived here longer than they ever lived in Taiwan, but still this is not their place of origin. Whereas between me and my children, we have a lot more similarity. And I, I, I don't know, I, I just felt this obligation to like figure myself out or figure something out that I could tell them, you know, like this is what it's going to be like, or this is my story. I want it to be your story. And how do I shift that to you? And so this book was in some ways me trying to work through stuff in figuring that out. I could feel that coming through the pages, you know, that this is is intensely personal book, but that it also shows the, like, it's the work of somebody who has, who has done a lot of the thought about it, right? Like it's, it seems like you've been thinking about these issues for a long time and that you've, you've come to certain conclusions about how it is that society kind of forces Asian Americans into specific roles, both in reality and also in popular culture and in the media, right? Is it something that you acutely sense uh, when you're watching TV and films? Like, is, is it always something that you're you're on the lookout for is, you know, oh, that Asian character only got three lines. Like, it, it seems like the, the book seems like you've been studying this kind of thing for a long time and, and you've kind of really uh, have, a, have a mastery of it. But I'm, I'm curious, like, what your personal experience is with that. Yeah, no, definitely. There's, it, and I don't know how my kids got it through osmosis or me actually saying it out loud, but it's the game we play. It's like <laughs> if we're watching TV, you don't have to be looking at the screen. Somehow there's like a spidey sense. Like there's an Asian on the screen right now. It's still novel enough in 2020 that it's notable sometimes. You know, if the show doesn't have a regular Asian on and there's an Asian suddenly either in the background or saying something, we're like, look what's happening right now. It's as if there's a, you know, talking horse or something. And I, I think, I don't know where I got that from, but um, on the one hand, there's been a lot of progress uh, in terms of Asian leads even in things. But yeah. on the other hand, it feels like we're just on the cusp of lots of that, more of that. You know, I don't know if it's just me or if that's like, do you play that game? Yeah, uh, I think I think I'm acutely aware of it. There was one part in your book where you said, like, the reason they don't put more Asians in things is because like Asians break the reality yeah. of of whatever you're watching, which I thought was really interesting. Like that you posit that like when you see a white person in a, in a TV show or film, or when you see a black person in a TV show or film, like that these people are somehow. Uh, so a part of the like America's founding myth or the, the fabric of their history that like it, it makes sense that you'd see a black or white person in a TV show or film, but that seeing an Asian there somehow muddies the waters a little bit. And I thought that was that was really fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's almost like a genre thing. It'd be like if in a cowboy movie, you all of a sudden see like you know a, an airplane, like it. it <laughs> There is a genre, or an Asian I character think. in a cowboy movie. <laughs> an Asian character breaks the reality of the the American TV genre, where most people are white, and then there's some black people. You know, like that. That to me still is basically what we see on screen, and we don't have. Of course, there are things that star Asians, but often they're either the Asian is the lead. Like Aquafina, they design. You know, 
that's a vehicle for her because she's this talent. There's no slot like let's do a show where there's a whole bunch of people in an apartment and they just happen to be Asian. Like that the structural thing where they're like every year they want a doctor show, a lawyer show, and then the young people in apartment show. The Asians can't just get the race neutral role for the most part. It right. either has to be about the lead who is an Asian or about their Asian-ness. And yet we all, you know, if depending on where you live, you encounter Asians every day in actual reality. But for whatever reason, that reality we don't see on screen yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles Yu, I really appreciate you highlighting uh, a lot of these issues in an extremely creative, enjoyable, poignant way in your new book, Interior Chinatown. Uh, again, Interior Chinatown is available right now. Charles Yu is also the author of books such as How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, Sorry, Please, Thank You, and Third Class Superhero. Charles, thanks for joining me today in Culturally Relevant. Thank you so much, Dave.